Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited for today's interview. Uh, before uh, bringing my guest in, I want to say thank you uh, to our patron supporters. Uh, because of your support, I get to produce free material like this that uh, spreads and defends the truth of Christianity. So thank you so much uh, for your support. If that's a mission that you want to get behind as well, you can follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a supporter for uh, just as little as a dollar a month or uh, however you feel led to give. But uh, yeah, so just follow the Patreon link below if you're interested in that. And I do want, I always forget to do this, so I made a, a, a little note here to remind myself. Uh, if you have questions uh, for my guests or myself, you can submit those in the in the live chat and just tag at Help Me Believe, and I'll address those near the end of our conversation. And if you tag at Help Me Believe, it helps kind of bring your question to the top whenever I'm scrolling through there, so I can uh, see which questions are actually directed towards me or my guests. So I appreciate that. Uh, if you can do that, also if you want to uh, give a super chat in the in the live chat, those will be addressed first. So with all of that out of the way, I'm going to bring my guest in today who is a PhD candidate at Duke University in New Testament Studies in Meals. Ian, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing well. How are you, Hayden? I'm doing very good, and I'm uh, excited to have you on. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this. I'm a big fan of uh, the podcast that you uh, host with the guests that I've had on uh, before, uh, Laura Robinson, so I'm excited now to have you on as well. Um, I've kind of given a little bit away, but uh, I thought it might be helpful for those who may or may not be familiar with you if you'd uh, give a brief introduction of yourself. Great. Thanks, Ed, and I appreciate the invitation. I'm a PhD candidate at Duke University. Like you said, I work in New Testament um, and early Christianity and Second Temple Judaism. Um, I, like you mentioned, co-host a podcast with Laura Robinson called The New Testament Review, where we discuss influential works of New Testament scholarship. Um, we've recently started doing after shows, which is the new, our break into YouTube. So af every month when we release a new episode, uh, we go on YouTube afterwards and just have a sort of Q&A discussion with our audience um, on YouTube. So I would here to promote that other, besides talking about the synoptic problem. Yeah. Um, good. Yeah, and, and I'll leave a link in the description. I honestly can't remember if I did so ahead of time, which I'm supposed to do, but if I didn't, I will go back and do that immediately so that you guys can go over to the New Testament Review podcast and uh, become followers of theirs. And you're going to want to do that. I, I myself, like I said, listen all the time. It's very good uh, stuff. They deal with a lot of scholarship, and so it's very interesting to, to hear all of that. So, Ian, uh, how did you become a Christian, and then how did you become, become interested in New Testament studies? Uh, to the point that you wanted to pursue a PhD in it? Complicated questions. Uh, I like to say that I was born a Christian, um, which is to say I was born in a Christian family, uh, raised in an evangelical household, um, wanted to be a Christian apologist when I was young, uh, went off to one of the most conservative colleges in the country, and there's a whole story to be told about that. But um, fast forward a year, and I'm not in college, and I'm paving roads, and I'm reading. I'm I'm probably not the only person who has... Uh, read Wittgenstein while driving a steamroller. Well, it wasn't a steamroller, it was just a roller. But um, uh, I, I like to think I'm one of a, a select people, a select few people who spent a whole year reading widely and um, paving roads. Uh, and from there, I went to the University of Minnesota and sort of decided what I wanted to do with my life, which was study philosophy and classics. Um, and I was, 
I wanted to sort of specialize in ancient philosophy, but also was really interested in the history of uh, modern philosophy. And through that became really interested in the philosophy of language and epistemology and things like that. But I was told to do that seriously, I needed to learn some primary languages. And they said, pick your primary languages, German, Greek, and Latin. Um, I started with Greek and Latin. Uh, and at Minnesota, um, the classics department is integrated with the Near Eastern Studies Department, classical Near Eastern Studies. Um, and so as I started learning Greek and Latin, I had professors tell me, you should take Hebrew. Hey, I'm doing a Coptic seminar next year. You should take Coptic. And I ended up working in those things. And undergraduates with Coptic are kind of a rarity. And because of that, I was encouraged to apply for a grant. And so I got a grant to work on um, Cop Coptic research project as an undergraduate. And all of the Coptic literature is early Christian literature. That's not literally true, but it's almost true. And so I ended up writing on the Gospel of Thomas as my capstone project um, as a like a full-time job, well, part-time job as an undergraduate. And so that's how I got back into the study of early Christianity. Um, and I sort of fell in love with the weirdness, the, the puzzles, the debates, um, and the literature. And so I sort of worked into the study of the New Testament through um, a classics department, but obviously with lots of baggage as um, growing up as a Christian. And I still, I should say, am a practicing uh, Christian today. I attend, a, I attend an Anglican church in Durham and things like that. So, Yeah, very interesting. So thanks uh, so much uh, for sharing about your background there. I appreciate it. Uh, so tell us about how the New Testament Review podcast came about. And uh, just kind of tell us yeah. a little bit about it, as well as the backstory, if you would. I know we kind of mentioned it already, but yeah, go ahead. Sure. Happily. So um, there are eight tracks in the religion department at Duke, and they admit seven students a year. Um, and so you usually get less than one student per track. But our year, uh, we had two New Testament students, Laura Robinson and myself. Um, and so we went through coursework together. We're good friends. I was a bridesmaid in her wedding. Um and when it came time to do exams, which I should probably explain, uh, comprehensive exams in uh, PhD programs, you take an entire year to read um, this long list of 200 and some books or whatever. Um, and then you have to take four four-hour exams, written essay exams, that you then have to defend orally. So it's a lot of work. Um, and you do a lot of reading. And Laura and I decided we'd like to prepare for these together. Um, so we would meet weekly and just discuss, we would read one of the same books that week because um, our lists had lots of overlap, although they were different, um, and then discuss that. And we would end up writing outlines and we were just having a lot of fun. And we thought, first of all, I wish we had a podcast to listen to uh, that would be helpful for what we were doing. And also, I wonder if someone else might be interested in listening to a podcast about the last several verses of Romans, whether or not you know, there's an interpolation there, which is one of these classic issues, or the uh, occasion of the Epistle to the Galatians, which is one of our episodes um, that we talk about. These sorts of questions, I think, are really interesting to, of course, scholars, but also to lots of lay people um, and, you know, Christians of all stripes. Um, and we've had success in that. We've been, we do, each episode it covers one piece of scholarship, which we contextualize historically and then discuss the reception of. Um, and we are on syllabuses at seminaries, and we get promoted by online atheists. And the fact that we can speak to Christian apologists, such as yourself, I, th I think means we're doing something right, which is um, we're 
we're speaking to an audience that's interested and doing it in a sort of different way from what else is out there in podcast world. Yeah, no, you certainly are. And I, I think it's going to be uh, very successful. And you guys are starting out uh, on YouTube now. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And Thanks. Uh, I think you're going to have a lot of success. I think there's, you know, a lot of people talk about this because of technology and things like that. The kind of the the gap between the scholars, the academy and the lay audience is kind of shrinking. Uh, not really, obviously, but the access to that kind of uh, material is shrinking and so that's it's um, and there's definitely a so to speak a market for it because uh, from I, your lips to god's ears right <laughs> because i i i'm very interested in it and i know a lot of uh, other people are as well like and a, a very uh, homogenous group is very interested in it like you were talking about from atheists to uh, christian apologists uh, and uh, scholars i'm sure it started heterog Heterogeneous. There you go. Yeah. Heterogeneous. Right? <laughs> yes. uh, I'm not sure what I said, but yeah. So I, <laughs> no, see, I, I, I pretend like I know big words and then I don't. And so that's how that works. But um, yeah, so we're, we're actually having you on to discuss the synoptic problem. I know I watched a, a lecture that you did on this. And so after having Laura on, I was kind of wondering what am I going to, I definitely want to have Ian on. What am I going to talk to him about? And then I saw your lecture on that. And I thought, oh, that'll be a good one. And then you are actually, uh, you guys are doing a thing over on your uh, YouTube channel. And, and uh, John texted me and said, uh, Ian just said he wanted to come on your show. And I was like, well, I was literally, <laughs> be believe it or not, but it really was, I really was already trying to think up of uh, what I could invite you on to discuss. So this is great. Uh, I so, think I cracked a joke about not being bitter, not getting invited after the Strobel show, which uh, was, a, was a joke. I wasn't bitter at all, but it's... Oh, thanks, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was definitely already in the works, uh, only in my mind. But yeah, it was definitely going to happen at some point. So I'm excited to have you to discuss this topic. And so uh, my first question about this topic is just what what is the synoptic problem? So kind of give us a, a basic overview of it. Besides being one of my favorite topics in the world, um, the synoptic problem is the question of the literary relationships between the synoptic gospels. And we should probably clarify first, what is a synoptic gospel and what, in what sense is this a problem? Um, most of your audience will know the synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The word synoptic means you can see them together, as in you can create a synopsis of them um, side by side. Um, and there's lots of verbal overlap. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, the sense in which this is a problem is not that it's a critique or a criticism. You can be the most conservative, fundamentalist, inerrantist person in the world and recognize the synoptic puzzle and be interested in the synoptic problem. Um, it's more of the, I mean, a synoptic puzzle might be a better way of describing it. That is, there is something here that there are different ways of explaining and um, it is an interesting question how someone will explain it. Um, that is, how do the Gospels relate to each other? Yeah. Um, and the word literary, I think, is really important, if you don't mind me going on there real quick, Please because do. this is this is all premised on the completely uncontroversial claim that there is a literary relationship between the synoptic Gospels. And I say completely uncontroversial, um, uncontroversial, because as far as I know, there aren't any scholars who would disagree with this. This is um, just really, really obvious if you look at the Gospels. 600 of the 661 verses in the Gospel of Matthew, or in the, sorry, in the Gospel of Mark, are taken over by Matthew verbatim. I mean, there are changes in things, but he's pulling over 
word for word out of the Gospel of Mark almost the entire gospel, over 90% of the gospel. Um, there are several thir- um, several 30-word overlaps, where 30 words, word for word, in the exact same order, prepositions, I mean, the whole thing is taken over verbatim. Um, there's over 23 stories that have more than 16 words verbatim overlaps. Um, and it's not just like the words of Jesus, which you might, under some scenario, imagine people to agree about. Um, it's descriptions of settings, like descriptions of like people's behavior, of who is present. They're being just, they're, they're describing the exact same things in the exact same words. Um, even down to Matthew and Mark share an editorial interjection. In math, in Mark 13, the synoptic apocalypse, um, they're talking about people fleeing in the winter, and he says, let the reader understand. Matthew copies that over verbatim, um, this, this interjection that Mark has put in there. Um, and so there are lots of reasons to think there's a literary relationship. I mean, this, this gives scholars lots of reasons to believe there's a literary relationship. Um, you don't have to do the same word order in Greek. Uh, word order doesn't matter as much because it's an inflected language. Um, and yet you still get Mark and Matthew translating Jesus's Aramaic speeches into Greek with the exact same word or- words in the exact same order, which can't be explained any way other than somebody was reading and copying out of somebody else. Yeah. yeah so, uh, just like you said, I think it's it's obvious that there is this uh, relationship, a literary relationship, and uh, so the synoptic problem or the synoptic puzzle is uh, going to be the question of what exactly is this relationship. And so you you kind of already hinted at uh, Matthew was using Mark, like that's that's uh, one option. Some people might think that Matt Mark was uh, you know whatever using Matthew and Luke, but. Um, so, but that's my next question is going to be: What are some of the popular solutions um, that people postulate to solve this puzzle? Yes. So there are two popular solutions in academia um, that almost—I mean, across the ideological spectrum—almost everyone falls into one of these two solutions. Um, any variant outside of those two, you're usually just one scholar here or there. Um, and these, uh, so the two scholarly solutions, and then there is one other solution that you can find some scholars advocating about 70 years ago, and some extremely conservative scholars still hold on to. So the two, the two scholarly solutions, the two scholar solutions you find in academia, both assume mark and priority. Um, so these are the fairer hypothesis, um, of which I'm an advocate, um, and the two source or for document hypothesis, which are the same thing. We'll just call them the two source theory for now. Um, I can explain what the, that is, what the distinction is between those later if you want. It's not that interesting. Um, so the fairer theory and uh, the two source theory on the one hand both assume mark and priority. And then there's the Griesbachian or the Augustinian uh, theory, um, which you'll find some hyper conservative scholars hold on to. And that is um, that Matthew was the first gospel written. Um, there's a difference. Griesbach thinks Mark is conflating Matthew and Luke, whereas the quote-unquote Augustinian theory is that Luke is conflating Matthew and Mark. Um, but what you need to know is that both of the academic solutions assume, or not assume, argue for Mark in priority, that Mark was the first written gospel, um, and that's in distinction from people who believe in Matthean priority. The difference between the two academic theories that both agree with Mark and Priority is how to explain about 220 verses in Matthew and Luke 
that are not present in Mark. Um, 220 verses that have high degrees of verbatim overlap. The fairer theory, uh, the right theory, no, the, the theory that I advocate, um, is uh, believes that Luke read Matthew, whereas the two-source or four-document hypothesis believes that Luke and Matthew were independently using another source called Q, which is from the German word Quella uh, for source. Um, now, I sh do you want me to go back and talk a little bit about why almost all scholars hold to Markan priority or why some conservative scholars hold to Matthean priority? I mean, I can yeah, you, you can parse do that. that a bit. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. So the... Arguments for Matthean priority are principally having to do with the patristic evidence. Um, if you go back and read um, uh, Clement of Alexandria, Augustine, um, these early patristic fathers, they believe that Matthew, the disciple, wrote the Gospel of Matthew. And so Matthew must have been the first gospel. Um, they tell you that Matthew is the first gospel written. Um, and... There are, I mean, people who would like to believe this, that Matthew was written by, the gospel of, according to Matthew was written by the disciple Matthew, um, have a lot of tr problems if they think Mark was written first. Um, we can talk about why that is in a second. Um, the problems with this is that this whole tradition about Matthew being written by the disciple Matthew and Mark being a hearer of Peter comes from Papias. Um, and they're explicitly borrowing from Pla this idea from Papias. They're copying this over. Um, some of them even, like Irenaeus, even tells you, like, this is from Papias. Um, problem is, Papias, there's good reason to think Papias is not reliable. That Papias is himself making inferences from scripture. Um, the easiest way to see this is Papias conflates the two Philips. Papias says that Philip the disciple, uh, the apostle, um, that is the follower of Jesus, has daughters, which is the Philip from Acts, who's a Greek. And so he's conflating the Philips. And this is the sort of thing scriptural interpreters do when they are, you know, reading scripture. It's not the sort of thing that happens for um, when someone is actually in touch with, like, the 12 disciples, like uh, conservative readers would like to believe Papias himself was. And the other thing is Papias doesn't actually say Matthew was written first. In fact, Papias treats Mark before Matthew. And um, he doesn't explicitly say that Mark was written first either, but I think uh, it's a natural reading of Papias to actually see him introducing Mark as sort of the first gospel, which is remarkable because that is so quickly lost in the patristic tradition. Um, and there's other reasons to think Papias isn't an accurate witness to the composition of Matthew. He says Matthew is written in Hebrew, which Matthew definitely was not written in Hebrew. Um, and we can, you know, talk about that more. Um, so that is the primary piece of evidence for Matthean priority. There are lots of really good textual reasons to believe in Mark and priority, which we can talk about later on. Um, but scholars generally don't accept uh, that, that particular argument for Matthean priority. And so once you move past that um, and start looking at the evidence, it's just a knockout um, that Mark was definitely the first gospel written. Yeah. So do you want to go ahead and touch on uh, the reasons for thinking Mark and priority? Or was you mentioned... Uh, possibly going on to something else I can't recall uh, what you briefly mentioned a minute ago, but... Uh. No, I'd, I'd happily start. The, the Mark and Priority is what Mark Whitaker calls the cornerstone. Like, we have to begin there. So okay. I'm delighted to delighted to jump into that. Um, there are lots of old arguments for Mark and Priority that aren't very good. Um, as with any, you know, theory, there's 
always going to be bad arguments for that theory. Um, so, like, some people have pointed out that uh, Mark seems to have a lower Christology than Matthew, that Matthew has these sort of theological corrections. So, for instance, Mark says that Jesus was unable to do anything good. Matthew just has him choose not to do anything good. Um, uh, when the the dialogue with the rich young ruler, um, he says, why do you ask me about the good in Matthew? Whereas Mark says, why do you... Um, no, sorry. Uh, Jesus says, why do you call me good? And Matthew says, why do you ask me about the good? And so there seems to be, in these places, Matthew seems to be like adjusting things that might be uncomfortable about Mark. You know, Mark spits in people's, uh, Jesus spits in people's eyes to heal them and uses mud, whereas Matthew just has it happen with a word. I don't think these are very good arguments um, because Christology isn't a linear graph that works across the entire world that Christology is always getting higher. You can make cases that there were people in the second century who had a lower Christology than people in the first century. Paul seems to have a very high Christology. Um, these aren't very good arguments. And there are similar things with Mark seems to have some mistakes in geography. I mean, he says at one point um, he has someone getting from the analogously getting from Chicago to Washington, D.C. by way of Seattle, like these sorts of like flubs. But again, um, this sorts of thing happens when you are working with sources. So it's not a really strong argument to say that Mark was written first and Matthew later. Much stronger arguments are the argument from Mark's purported redaction profile and the argument from editorial fatigue. A redaction profile is um, if you have an author working with a source, you can look at the way that author has changed their source to see what that author is interested in. So if you write a little essay and I come along and write another version of the same essay using your words um, and I change I change out one word for another, um, that may reveal something to you about what I'm particularly interested in and especially where I disagree with you or differ from you. Um, and we call that redaction. That is the sort of the profile of how someone is altering their source. Um, and one of the weird issues is it, one of the strange things about uh, Matthean priority is if you assume that Mark is working with Matthew, the vision you get of Mark is very, very strange. You get someone who come, who is reading the Matthew's passion narrative. Jesus dies, is buried, and then there's these great resurrection appearances. And Mark comes along and deletes those. Likewise, uh, you get the story of a virgin birth that Mark apparently thinks is unnecessary and deletes. Um... And there's several other places like this where you get someone, like the stories we told about earlier, where in Matthew, Jesus chooses not to heal be, um, where, uh, because of the lack of faith. And then Mark comes along and says, that's no good. We need to make Jesus unable to heal. Right. And so you get this image of Mark, who I think most people would agree thinks Jesus is a pretty swell fellow, um, has a very high view of Jesus coming along and taking a text and consistently making Jesus less capable and deleting stories of his resurrection. I mean, Mark clearly believes in resurrection appearances. He has Jesus prophesy these things uh, to his disciples um, earlier in the ministry. So he thinks these things happened. He just doesn't narrate them. And to have him come along and delete these, you get a guy who doesn't, it, it's a very strange picture of who Mark would have to be to want to delete resurrection and uh, infancy stories, virgin birth stories. Um, so I think that's a pretty fair argument. The best argument, however, in my opinion, comes from Mark S. Goodacre, who happens to be my doctoral advisor. Nice. Um, and it's the argument from editorial fatigue. Uh, 
And editorial fatigue is where, again, um, there's an author working with the source, and the author makes a characteristic change to their source. That is, they make the kind of change we can see them doing consistently across their work that they're really interested in. So, for instance, Luke likes tens. Luke introduces tens throughout lots of his stories. Um, or uh, Luke rearranges Mark's order. Um, he has this big, long road trip he puts in after chapter uh, right in the middle of chapter nine through up until Jerusalem, things like that. Um, and uh, so a characteristic change is made to the story. And then as the author is progressing, they start copying over the verbatim wording of their source. And in doing that, create an inconsistency with their characteristic change. And there's great examples. There's many very good examples of places where Matthew and Luke make have characteristic differences from Mark, which on X hypothesis would be a characteristic change, and then lapse back into Mark's wording in a way that is perfectly consistent in the Gospel of Mark, but creates an inconsistency in Matthew and Luke. Can I give one example of each? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the feeding of the 5,000 in the Gospel of Luke, uh, it happens in Mark 6, and I think Luke, I don't remember where it happens in Luke. Um... Luke 9, I think. Um, in Mark, this happens in a, des- in a deserted place. They're in the wilderness. And uh, the disciples say to him, we are here in a deserted place. Where should we go get food? Um, Luke, like he does so often with Mark, rearranges the order. He does it after a certain point. He starts rearranging the order. And he puts, he relocates this episode, as he also does frequently, and he puts it in Bethsaida, a major fishing village. So he takes the story from Luke, from Mark, and puts it in a major fishing village. But as we get to the end of the story, the disciples, he copies over what they say in Mark verbatim. We are here in a deserted place. Where should we go get food? And the reader who just has Luke has to think like, no, no, you're in the middle of a city. Like, we know you're not a deserted place. You're in a fishing village. You can get food right here. But it makes perfect sense as a diachronic reading. That is, we can we can see exactly what's happened. Luke has taken a story from Mark and then copied over the verbatim wording and missed the fact that his change creates an inconsistency with something that makes perfect sense in Mark. Cool. Um, something very similar happens with Matthew. I mean, there are several places where this happens, but one really interesting case is Herod's grief in Mark. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark, um, Herod likes John the Baptist. He's interested in hearing him. The, the author, I don't remember the exact wording is, but he says he's interested in listening to him. Um, and then it is Herodias, that uh, Herod's daughter, who gets him to kill John the Baptist. And then Herod is sad about this. So there's the whole dancing story where he'd give him, you know, ask for anything up to half of your kingdom. And then she says, I want John the Baptist's head on a plate. And it says, Herod grieves but does it anyways to save face, right? It makes perfect sense in Mark, because in Mark, Herod is interested in John the Baptist, likes him, doesn't want to kill him, and is tricked into doing so by this sort of story of a dancing girl. In Matthew, Herod from the very beginning doesn't like John the Baptist. He is bothered by John the Baptist from the very beginning of the story. Um, and you could argue this is also characteristic. There's a sort of... Uh, there, Matthew consistently heightens tensions between authorities and Jesus. Um, just look at Pharisees, um, which is surprisingly not a big theme outside of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, so characteristic change, but when it gets to the end of the story, Matthew still copies over verbatim Mark's grieving Herod. Um, so again, literary copying has produced a narrative inconsistency 
um, by a characteristic change. So, I'll take a breath now. And yeah, <laughs> no, that's all very interesting, especially that last part that you're talking about. Uh, that that does make a lot of sense. Uh, real quickly, I do want to say to the audience, if you have a question for either Ian or myself, just tag, uh, preferably Ian, but just tag at help me believe in the question that you're putting in the live chat. Um, if you'll tag at help me believe first and followed by your question uh, or something like question in all caps, that way at the end of the episode, whenever I go back through the, the comment section to find uh, questions for Ian to answer, I'll be able to know which ones are actually directed at us and not uh, kind of amongst yourselves. Uh, so that's very helpful if you can do that. Uh, but Ian, tell me uh, which, uh, you mentioned that you, you are a proponent of the uh, fairer hypothesis, if I said that yep. cor correctly. So Correct. tell me uh, what that is. And uh, if you want to open the can of worms on the Q source, you're welcome to do so uh, as you answer this question. I'll leave that up to Absolutely. you. Absolutely. I would love to. Um, I want to preface this by saying that I think the two-source theory is a good theory, and there are good reasons. They have, they have good arguments, um, and it is not a fanciful, it's not scholarly hubris. There's a real problem that they are solving. They've come up with the wrong solution. Um, but it's also a good theory because it makes like predictions that can be falsified. You can go look at the text. There are things you can imagine constructions of the text that would falsify the two-source theory, the Q theory. Um, and go look to the text. Bad theories are theories that can explain not all the data, but can explain any construal of the data. Um, and it's not a bad theory. So um, I think the first question you need to ask is, I mean, so backing up a second, we don't have any physical evidence for Q. This is not a reason to disbelieve in Q. Uh, people who make those kinds of arguments are usually not fairer theorists, or they're don't, not really interested in the synoptic problem. They're people like N.T. Wright, who just want to sweep the synoptic problem aside and get onto something they want to talk about, which is fine. N.T. Wright does interesting stuff. It's just he is not a scholar of the synoptic problem. Um, uh, fairer theorists will not say that n the lack of manuscripts is an argument against Q. They will say that Q is a hypothetical document. And so because we don't have any manuscript attestation or patristic testimony, you need something to motivate your belief in reconstructing such a hypothetical document. The mere, you know, presence of, of you know, words in a single document does not justify positing a hypothetical source. Um, we don't posit hypothetical sources for stuff that's unique to Mark. Uh, it's just what Mark wrote, right? Um, so what, what justifies people believing in Q is three facts. The first is a literary relationship, which we've already established. It's definitely a literary relationship. The second is high verbatim agreements in Matthew and Luke for passages not present in Mark. For passages present in Mark, everyone agrees, they're just reading Mark, uh, right? It's not hard to explain that stuff. Um, the problem is there's these 220-some verses where Matthew and Luke have extensive word-for-word -word agreements. Some of the longest word-for-word -word agreements in all the synoptic gospels are places where there is no parallel passage in Mark. So you need to explain those things. But there's one more thing you need to justify believing in a hypothetical source. Because the easiest explanation of Matthew and Luke just agreeing with each other is that just one of them was reading the other, right? Um, that's what we usually think when we find two sources. You know, you submit two papers to me in a class. The first assumption I have is that one of, you know, or sorry, two different students submit papers to me. The, the most natural assumption is that one of them is copying the other one. Um, but to 
posit a hypothetical source, you need one more belief, and that is the, the belief that Matthew and Luke were working independent from one another. That is, Matthew and Luke didn't know each other. Luke's ignorance of Matthew is the constitutive explanandum for Q. That it is the thing you are trying to explain that constitutes the whole hypothesis. Um, and so what would make you believe that Luke and Matthew are mutually ignorant? Um, the biggest... There's a couple arguments. I can't go over all of them. I, I treat them, we treat them in our podcast. I have the lecture up on YouTube where I discuss several more of them. But one of the biggest arguments is that um, Q theorists will say that Matthew doesn't preserve, sorry, Luke doesn't preserve Matthew's changes to Mark. So when Matthew is copying out of Mark, he will change stuff in Mark. They do this all the time. We would expect, says a Q theorist, to find Luke then in places, what are called triple tradition passages, passages where Mark, Matthew, and Luke all have parallels, we would expect Luke to copy over Matthew's changes to Mark. And Q theorists would tell you that he doesn't. The author of Luke does not. The problem is, Luke does. <laughs> um, there's a lot of places where Luke does. But Q theorists have come up with other ways of describing this data. So the biggest category, Q theorists will talk about a category of Mark-Q overlap. That is passages that are extant both in Mark and the Q document. And what does this look like? This looks like places where Matthew and Luke have extensive verbatim agreement against Mark, where Mark is also survives its extent. That is, Mark has this version of the story, Matthew is related to that, looks similar, but has extensive verbatim, but has extensive changes. Mm -hmm. And then Luke agrees with Matthew on those extensive changes. Oh, <laughs> They're contradicting themselves, yeah. That is exactly the kind of data you are supposed to point to that, that shouldn't exist. That is exactly the kind of data which justifies your belief in the mutual ignorance that Luke and Matthew don't know each other. Mm. Um, but they, what they've done is they've just said, no, documents overlap all the time. We would just expect Q and Mark to overlap, which is fine. Like, if there were good reasons to believe in Q, we would expect them to overlap. The problem is that this is their reason for believing in Q. Okay. So is there any instances where – is there any instances where uh, Luke does not carry over Matthew's uh, – Changes to Mark. Changes to Mark. Yes, lots of them. Um and this is really interesting. I mean, it is absolutely true that Luke was also working with Mark. Luke had Mark in front of him. And right. if you look at the way they organize the gospel, you can tell that this is the case because Matthew rearranges the first 10 chapters of Mark, um, puts them in a different order. Luke copies Mark's order for those stories. Mm. And so you, we know he's working through those 10 chapters um, using a copy of Mark, because he follows Mark's order for those things, not Matthew's. And then he gets to the end of those things, and then you get the you get the big road trip, and you get all the stuff, Matthew's changes get jumbled into the rest of that stuff. Yeah. That's, that's a little complicated. Um, but yes, there are absolutely places where Matthew makes changes that Luke doesn't copy. But that's because Matthew, Luke, I mean, 
as far as we know, historians in antiquity didn't hold up parallel documents and what's called micro-conflate. Instead, he's working with one source at a time, and we know for the first 10 chapters he's working with Mark. Okay. So how would you hypothetically prove that Q existed? Because it seems here that the last thing that you needed to prove uh, could only end in some kind of a contradiction. No, it's perfectly... If if the Mark Q overlaps didn't exist, if every time we have triple tradition, that is, every time there's a story extent in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, Luke only agreed with Mark, and Matthew only agreed with Mark, and Luke and Matthew never agreed with each other, that would be very, very good reason to believe in Q. Okay. And that's exactly... That's what Q theorists are saying is the case. They're saying... Um, there isn't any agreement except where Q has an overlapping story. And the problem is you've just reclassified the thing that you're saying doesn't exist. Right. So right. it's a good, that's why I think it's a good argument. It's structurally, it's good. It makes a concrete prediction about the arrangement of data according to which we should believe in Q. It's just that that description of the data doesn't obtain. That okay. isn't what we find when we look at the gospels. Yeah. Okay. So now uh, shift to the fair hypothesis and kind of, uh, yeah, what are its uh, distinctions, distinctives? Right. So the fair hypothesis believes that Luke was simply copying out of Matthew. Um, and so one of the arguments for this are things like places where Luke copies over Matthew's changes to Mark, like the Mark-Q overlaps. But also, um, Q isn't extent in the passion narrative or in the infancy, doesn't have an infant, sorry, Yes, that's right. Q doesn't have infancy or passion narrative. It's a, it's a, the text as reconstructed is just sayings of Jesus. The problem is that Matthew and Luke have verbatim agreements in both the passion narrative and the infancy narrative, which isn't supposed to be extent in Q and certainly isn't getting from Mark, which doesn't have either of those things. Um, but there's positive arguments. Not, it's not only... Um, arguments for a literary dependence between those two Gospels. There's actually positive arguments that can tell us that dependence had to point one direction, not the other. That is, Luke is using Matthew, Matthew isn't using Luke. And the positive evidence for this is editorial fatigue. Um, that is the exact same phenomenon that gets us to see one of the good arguments for Mark's, or Matthew and Luke's use of Mark also works to show Luke uses Matthew. The parable of the talents and the minas um, from Luke and Matthew. There's no parallel in Mark. Um, this is Matthew 25 and Luke 19. Um, in these stories, we see, um, I, I'm not able to recount it all right now. I have In the lecture online, I have the text up behind me. Um, but the, the long and the short of it is um, Luke adds in tens. So he makes there, there be 10 slaves, enslaved people, not just three as in Matthew. But then when he's copying later in the story, he laps back into there just being three. Furthermore, the number of units of money, talents in Matthew and minas in Luke, um, the number of units of money at the end of the story, Luke accidentally copies over Matthew's story. So it, according to Luke's logic, the best um, enslaved person, he starts off with 10. Oh, let's see, how does it work? He, he ends up with 11 at the end of the story. He should have 11. But Luke copies over Matthew's 10, which is what the Matthew's best uh, enslaved person gets, which is 5 and 5. Um, so Luke here has lapsed back into concrete narrative details that only make sense on Matthew's telling of the story. Um, and he's done this by making, he's done this in, um, in service of making a characteristic change, which is adding in a, a 10, making something that's a different number into a 10, which he does, you know, all over the place, the 10 virgins, 10. Yeah. 
Gotcha. So how many, uh, this, this question comes up a lot, uh, whenever I'm either reading or having conversations with, uh, Jesus mythicists or with, you know, some kind of apologetic question. But the question is, uh, how many independent sources do you think there are here? Uh, whether that be, you clearly don't think that Q was an independent uh, source, but is there any others? Or how many sources do you think we're working with here when we talk about the, the Gospels? I'm going to dispute the premise a little bit, which is, I don't think this is a very interesting question, and it's not the sort of question that informs the way historians work with sources. We usually can't tell. So how many independent sources does Thucydides have when he's writing his history of the Peloponnesian War? Um, let's, for sake of argument, talk just about the events that Thucydides himself didn't witness. Um, we have no way of answering that question. It's not totally clear what it would mean. Um, like... Thucydides probably isn't depending on lots of literary sources, and there's not a really good reasons to think that Mark is either. I think Mark probably composed his whole gospel de novo. Um, doesn't mean they either of them made this stuff up. Um, it means they're not working with pre-formulated literary sources. Maybe there were some. Maybe Thucydides had somebody's journals, somebody's letters, or something like that. Uh, he doesn't really seem to reveal that. Um, so then we're talking about like people talking to each other. And again... So when Thucydides comes to write the Melian Dialogue or things like that, think events he wasn't present for, how many people did Thucydides talk to? Like, that's a really silly question to ask. And I don't mean to be criticizing you. This is, no, I've heard so many people have asked this before. Um, but this sort of bean counting is the sort of thing you do in apologetics, including atheist apologetics, to sort of like build up mounds of evidence, numbers that are like numerically insuperable. But it doesn't actually like, help you um, very much. And it's usually not the sort of thing we have evidence for. Um, Historians instead ask very different kinds of questions. What kind of text is the author writing? Um, That is, uh, Socrates writing the story, or sorry, Plato writing the story of Socrates' trial. He's writing a very particular kind of text. And we have other sources for what happened there. Um, And Plato, how many sources how many sources did Plato have access to is again, sort of a meaningless question. Instead, we want to ask, what does he present himself as writing, you know, in writing, in writing the apology? Um, and how does Plato's presentation of this information line up with other sources we have for knowing about what happened at Socrates's death? Um, I think that and, just is kind of the, inter, inter, sorry. Yeah. If, just cause I'll forget please. if I'll forget, I think that just kind of is right there. What you just said, the interesting thing about this question, or at least to my mind makes this question at least a little bit valid is that we we want to know how does this line up with other sources that are talking about this also and so to to my mind maybe i can make it more concrete what do you do with i'm trying to figure out how to formulate the question what do you do with the so-called special material so l material the m material so material that is unique to matthew or material that is unique to l is it actually unique and uh, if so does it point towards a an independent source like i'm kind of getting at or does it point towards maybe uh, what would you say authorial creativity or something like that or yeah i'm gonna say 
yes to both of those, and both of those are two loosey-goosey categories to be really good and workable. So let me let me quick just make another analogy here. So um, all of Thucydides is special Thucydides, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, he's writing this history of the Peloponnesian War. This is all Thucydides. Does that mean Thucydides is exercising authorial creativity? Absolutely. 100% yes. Does that mean Thucydides made all of this up? Definitely not. What we ask instead is, who was Thucydides? What sorts of things is Thucydides trying to accomplish in writing this letter? And what other sources, not this letter, this history, and what other sources do we have at getting at the underlying events? And where we have good sources, how does that accord with what Thucydides said? And how does that relate to Thucydides' interests that we were just talking about? So I'm going to be done talking about Thucydides in one second, I promise. That's fine. But we ha- we have a play of Aristophanes that talk that sort of reveals what the popular understanding of the causes of the Pel- Peloponnesian War were. This particular event that happened, Thucydides seems to be covering this thing up, and we happen to know Thucydides was friends with the guy who was responsible. So here we have an instance where we have another source for something, and um, Thucydides seems to be trying to cover this um, thing up. Uh, so he doesn't really discuss this particular event. And it seems to be in service of a particular political or ideological allegiance Thucydides had. And that's how scholars approach sources for the purposes of reconstructing history. They don't try to ask, let's parse out how many different independent literary sources or um, Thucydides must have had access to. We don't know, and it's not all that useful or interesting. So with the Gospels, um, I think there's very little reason to believe that um, there's very little reason to believe we can reconstruct any of the literary sources Mark, Matthew, and Luke had other than Mark and Matthew. That is, Luke using those Gospels. That doesn't mean that everything... I, I think there's the, the default assumption should be for all of this text that Luke um, composed this afresh, is exercising authorial creativity in doing this. Um, so with Mark... I think there's good reason to believe that Mark composed everything de novo. Um, there may be cases. I mean, it's probably more likely than not that there was at least one other source around of some shape or size that Mark had access to. We probably don't have any way of figuring out where that was, what that looked like, or anything about that. There are still very, very good reasons to believe that Mark and Luke, in exercising authorial creativity and being the first person to compose these stories about Jesus, didn't make it up. Um, they may have made up some stuff. In fact, uh, the synoptic problem and looking the ways Matthew and Luke change Mark gives us very good reason to show us that they are making ideologically driven changes, which I want to talk about in a second, if you would let me. Mm-hmm. But let me quickly give two examples where it's really clear that the evangelist is recording, is is probably composing material. He is, he's writing material that he definitely didn't make up, that he... Um, and the two examples are uh, Mark in Mark 7, the hand-washing controversy. Um, Mark tells us how he reads that. He tells us that thus Jesus declared all foods clean, which we have very good reason to believe that Jesus never did. And fascinatingly, if you read the story, Jesus doesn't say that's what he's doing. <laughs> um, the story is a very, it reads like a sort of rabbinic debate over law observance. Um, for the record, why do we think Jesus didn't do that? Because Peter needs to have a vision in Acts 10 to tell him that food is clean. He clearly didn't get that from Jesus. Um, he's got a whole vision communicating this to him. And if it was, if Jesus had said all this, this wouldn't have been a major controversy for Paul. But anyways, backing up, Mark is telling a story about Jesus's teaching that doesn't actually accomplish what he tells you it's accomplishing. 
Um, so if if he had a story where Jesus said, I there hereby declare all foods clean, he surely would have put that in there, but he doesn't. Um, and similarly with Luke, Luke's um, teaching about G, uh, that the worker should be paid for their labor, um, that is something that Luke adds into the gospel. We don't, neither Mark nor Matthew have that. But Paul, working much earlier, says that Jesus taught this. So here we have a place where there's no reason to think that Luke is copying out of Paul when he's writing his Jesus traditions. Um, here we have a place where Luke and Paul agree on a teaching of Jesus without any reason to believe in a literary relationship. They both knew about, you know, Luke definitely knew Paul existed. He wrote the book of Acts. Um, that is not the same thing as uh, Luke copying this story out of Paul, which he doesn't do. I mean, it's pretty clearly not the same. Yeah. Um, now th this so is... there's good reason. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, you're good. No, I was just going to point out, this is a good distinction to make, especially it's going to have a lot of relevance for me Tomorrow, whenever I'm debating on the on the Jesus mythicist uh, topic, the, the distinction between saying, like you just said, did Luke know Paul? Yes, but that's not the same as saying uh, Luke is literally dependent upon Paul. Um, right. At least that, that's how I understood the distinction you were making. And yep. So this, absolutely. This um, is this is something that often gets, in my opinion, very much. Uh, the line there is is grayed between the mythicists who try to say, oh well, you know, we know the gospel writers knew Paul, so this is all this isn't independent evidence or something like that. And I'm like, no, that's not how that works. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if if that was how the gospels originated, Mark would have had Jesus say what Paul said. Right. Mark would have had Jesus say, I came to abolish the law. <laughs> um, he doesn't. Yeah. Uh, he has this hand-washing controversy, which reads like a rabbinic debate over law observance, and he has to lay on his theological reading of that over what he's recording Jesus said. Um, and so you can clearly see, I mean, Mark here is so clearly preserving a tradition about Jesus that doesn't say everything that Mark tells us he thinks this thing says. Mm. So and there's other places of this, the Son of Man stuff too, but go on. I was just, and I was also going to say, and I'm very simple thinker and uh, not half as informed as yourself or somebody like Laura, but it, it, just thinking about these sources and which ones are independent and things like that, and is there an independent source behind it or something like that, I think probably, and I don't know how good the case is, but I think of the cases, I think the L material actually is probably the strongest, only because Luke says that he has knows about other sources and then we know that he did use other sources, namely Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark, yeah, yeah exactly. So it's like, okay, so he does use multiple sources. He claims to know multiple sources. And then when we find material that's uh, not found in the two sources that we know he used, I think at least it's got to be more possible. Maybe, I don't know if it's probable, but it's definitely... Uh, there, there are very smart people who agree with you. Okay. I'm not one of them. Um, you can tell <laughs> well, I'm because not I'm not smart, but I also... either. I'm just saying that one makes the most sense to me. But yeah. Um, no, and I, I think there are interesting arguments against that. But it's the, the most important thing is it's really hard to know how we would figure that out. Yeah. No. Yeah. Surely, authors. I mean, so E.P. Sanders, the four source, the four document hypothesis, which is the belief in not only Q but also M and L, that everything special to Matthew and Luke comes from a written source. Um, E.P. Sanders called this the doctrine of preservation of matter and energy, which is this notion that gospel authors had to copy over 
everything in their sources. Um, right. And I think there's lots of good reasons to think. I mean, this isn't how other authors in antiquity work. People have no problem being selective with sources. Mm-hmm. The weird thing about the synoptics is how conservative they are, which is the topic of my dissertation. But I'm not going to go there. So let's talk about something yeah. else. <laughs> now, I think it's... It- if I had to guess, and like you said, we were talking about things that we can't be certain of, I would think it's probably a combination of something like, uh, yeah, there might have been some other sources, uh, literary sources, um, and then there might have been, and there certainly was uh, what I termed authorial, whatever I said, creativity. Creativity. There's certainly some of that as well. And then, but there's also this other thing uh, that I, that's what I also wanted to mention was mm-hmm. uh I don't even know how to ask the question, but I just want to bring up uh, the, uh, dang it. I get in these interviews and I just lose terms like crazy. They just start falling away. I read about this stuff all the time and then I can never remember terms. But uh, spoken traditions that would have. uh, Oral tradition. Oral tradition that would have predated the uh, literary sources. So do you think that there was a lot of that or kind of what is the, what relevance does that have to this? Oral tradition is a very fancy academic word for people talking to each other. (laughs) And I, like every historian I know, believe that people in antiquity talked to each other. That said, there's not a whole lot more you can say about oral tradition in antiquity with any sort of methodological rigor because everything that survives to us is written. And the greatest proponents of the importance of oral tradition, people like James Dunn. He's got this uh, article called Resetting the Default Position, which we're going to do. We were going to do a New Testament review podcast on, and then James Dunn sadly passed, and I felt like it was an inappropriate time to do a critical uh, review of one of his articles. But in this article, James Dunn argues that there are no distinguishing features for oral tradition. Nothing sets it apart. Nothing is diagnostic. Um Therefore, he concludes, we should just assume that everything came from oral tradition, which I think is exactly the wrong conclusion. Um, (laughs) uh, I just don't think oral tradition has a lot of analytic utility. People talk to each other, and we can see from stuff like Mark 7 and from Luke's uh, saying about um, teachers deserving pay that oral tradition must have preserved stuff across time. People talk to each other and told each other stories, and... Um, that preserved some accurate information across time. I mean, how many people do you think in America have read a book on Martin Luther King Jr.? Not a lot. A lot of people know a lot about him, and it's from oral tradition. That is, from people talking to each other. Um, And they do that without ever having a biographical source. Um, A lot of people also remember things that aren't true about him or have selective memories of him and things like that. Um, and that just that just happens. That's just how oral tradition works. <laughs> how talking to people works, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I do want to, can I say one more thing about authorial creativity? Yeah, sure. My favorite example of ortho- authorial creativity, and there's lots of good examples, but this is from an article by Joel Marcus, is that Matthew likes earthquakes. Mark, and the, Mark quotes this passage from the Jewish scriptures that says that earthquakes will be part of the eschaton, the, the end of days. And, Ma- and the synoptics seem interested in, you use eschatological language to describe Jesus. Um, read the passion narratives, the, the sun darkening. That's all things that are supposed to happen at the end of the world happening in Jesus' life. Matthew adds three earthquakes into the Gospel of Mark, where he is copying over Mark verbatim. And the weirdest one of these is the stilling of the storm in Matthew 8. 
Matthew copies over uh, Mark's stilling of the storm with high verbatim agreement. But the, the place where it says storm, Matthew substitutes an earthquake for the storm. And why this is so interesting is because earthquakes do produce waves. And Matthew and Mark both tell you that there are waves produced. Earthquakes don't produce wind. And Matthew preserves, copies over verbatim from Mark, this wind. Um, and it's another case of editorial fatigue. Matthew has changed over in service of eschatologizing. That's a hard word to say. Making eschatological, making end timesy um, the gospel of Mark, sort of increasing these sorts of eschatological predictions that come true in the life of Jesus. Um, in service of that independently verifiable redactional tendency, Matthew creates an inconsistency. That is an earthquake that produces wind um, and deletes Mark's storm. Um, which is just a fun case study that it doesn't like, it doesn't matter for being a Christian, but it's an interesting place where you can see an author is exerting creativity in service of a theological agenda, which is to tell you Jesus, that was the eschatological climax of history that the Jewish prophets were foretelling, according to Matthew. Now, don't you know, Ian, that it does matter and it has very significant importance. We have to harmonize this. So what happened was there was yeah. such an earthquake, there was such an earthquake in that it caused a gust of wind. And so there, you know, one witness was just preserving what the other witness failed to notice. <laughs> this is this is a great great transition I'm to talking about that. I'm pretty good at that. You I are. Could, I could do that. There are some great places where that can't be done. Um, yeah. And I think this is interesting for the next question we talked about maybe discussing, which is the implications. Yeah, so let's that's the next question was going to be what implications do you think that this creates uh, for Christian theology? I think this the synoptic problem that is not so much the synoptic problem as the synoptic gospels, the reality that there are three tellings of the exact same stories in the New Testament right next to each other, um, tells us something about what we should expect out of Scripture. I am a confessing, practicing Christian. Um, at least on my good days, I practice. Um, no, I, I, I practice even on my bad days. Uh, and I believe, therefore, that Scripture is inspired. The question is, what does that mean? What does it mean for a text to be inspired? And I think the Synoptic Gospels give us some insight into that. Or that is, at least, if we revere Scripture, we shouldn't start with a conviction about what that has to mean and bring that and overlay that onto Scripture. We should instead go look at Scripture and do our darndest to understand this thing and let that inform our reading of Scripture. Sure, it's circular. All hermeneutics is. Um, so... The problem, so when you start off the Gospels from the very, very beginning, you get the baptism of Jesus. And what does uh, this heaven split uh, and a voice comes down from heaven? What does it say? In Mark and Luke, it says, you are my son. In Matthew, it says, this is my son. I know, theologically groundbreaking, it is not. But... These, this is a difference. And it, Jesus wasn't baptized multiple times with the heavens splitting open multiple times with God saying almost the exact same thing, but with two different pronouns. This is one event that are narrated in a absolutely 
irreconcilable way. There is Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, whatever language you think the divine voice spoken, there is no dialect of the Semitic language families or Indo-European language families in which the second person singular pronoun and the third person singular pronoun are identical. We have here a hard and fast contradiction on a single event. Um, and to try to reconcile these things together is to say it is more important to me that scripture be exactly what I think it should be, that is a verbatim transcript of historical events, than it is to take seriously what we get, what what our tradition gives us, that is what we get between two covers of a modern New Testament. Um, And I think that should teach us something. And there's lots of examples of this, like whether or not you can bring a staff on a missionary journey. Mark says no. Matthew and Luke say yes. Not groundbreaking, but it's the same word. It's a staff, and um, it's the same story told in the same context. The same events are going on around it with verbatim overlap, and they just contradict. Um, and again, I, I firmly believe that people who try to reconcile these things are um, – don't have a higher view of scripture than me. <laughs> um, the people would accuse me of having this being a low view of scripture. And I don't think so. I am someone who has dedicated my life to studying scripture. And when you do that, what you find, I mean, I'm an ancient historian, so I don't actually do professional theology. Um, I do YouTube theology sometimes Ooh. when uh, I get invited to. Um, uh, but um, in so much as I am a theolo- doing theology in my personal life, um, Trying to reconcile these things is to say it's more important to me that that scripture be what some modernist critics have decided it must be than to take seriously the fact that we have different tellings of the same thing. And I think once you get there, there are things that open up. He had visions of, I mean, once you get there, you can start paying attention to redactional tendencies in the Gospels. The fact that Matthew changes Mark consistently in a way that promotes law observance. Um, I'm happy to talk about those. That's one of the most fascinating theological ways that redaction criticism changes how you read a text theologically. Um, and you can see that we we get in the New Testament, we, we could have had, I mean, the Syriac church up into the sixth century seems to have just one gospel that harmonizes everything, but that's not what we get in most I mean, in all modern traditions of Christianity, what we get is three narratives that have hard and fast contradictions. Um, And I think you can start to see there that we have texts that are canonized for us that disagree with each other. And I think they disagree with each other in ways that, like, I don't think Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, and Paul could have been in the same room without clawing each other's eyes out. Um, I think they are diametrically opposed on the some of the most important issues to these two people. Um, and one of the hottest controversies in the mid to late first century. Um, and yet for us as Christians, these are texts that are canonized. Diversity goes all the way back. Um, and diversity is canonized. And I think that opens up visions. Yeah, please. Now I'd like to hear more about uh, what you think this means for inspiration, but uh, you know, one of the things that comes to my mind is just that, uh, you know, somebody who might be opposed to this is, I don't know, there's like this, behind what they're doing is this assumption that if God inspired it, that it must just be very simple. Um, I mean, I believe in divine simplicity from a, a philosophical perspective, but what I mean here is that everything must just cohere perfectly, as if God couldn't inspire uh, something complex. First of all, he's not, he's inspiring people 
I, I suppose, if that's what inspiration is supposed to mean, that the, these people were inspired to write it. Uh, and people are complex. And so if there's, like you said, if Paul and Matthew did have disagreement amongst each other, uh, but, and they're both inspired by God, I don't think this means God contradicts God. I just think right. it means that God has inspired complexity here around perhaps, well, I don't want to say something unimportant, but something not at the core of things or something like Because it's not as if there's contradictions like one gospel says Jesus rose from the dead and the other gospel says Jesus died and he stayed dead. Uh, Correct. So I, yeah, it's, it's, it's probably important to, to say that we don't mean contradiction in that way. We mean contradiction in the way that Ian pointed out, uh, this versus he, uh, things like that. But, uh, yeah, if you have anything more to add on what this means for inspiration, that'd be great. Oh, that's a, it's a great, just on the notion of simplicity. Um, my mother once said, you know, it doesn't take, I had been explaining to her the new perspective on Paul and she said, it doesn't take a PhD in new Testament to read the Bible. And she's right. Um, it takes several thousand PhDs <laughs> over hundreds of years. Um, because the fact of the matter is, Sitting down to open a Bible, um, you are not, you are, you are getting a product of hundreds of people's labors over hundreds of years. None of us have ancient Greek as our first language. None of us have Paleo Hebrew as our first language. Um, moreover, the text you're reading, I mean, is is not only translated, but there's text critical work has gone into figuring out what the heck we should print because there are massive differences in the manuscripts. Um, especially, especially the Hebrew Bible. Um, and so this notion that we can just come and read scripture and it should, everything should be simple and true and a sort of like guide to life, a user manual to life just totally misunderstands how the Bible has even gotten to you. Um, there are so many cultural translations, um, besides just like lexicography, that are going into giving you a text to read. People have had massive studies of extra biblical texts to try to figure out, I mean, to try to figure out how to translate simple words um, that show up throughout the Bible. Um, the the It's not like we have a user manual that has been printed in every language on earth in every dialect that is constantly updating. What we have are thousands of manuscripts with all sorts of variation of different kinds in different places in languages that nobody left alive today reads as their first language. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of scholarship that goes into this. Yeah. Um, I mean, it all, I mean, the way I view inspiration, I mean, I could almost, it could almost be a prediction of my view that, if God inspired this, it's going to be complex. There's probably going to be even disagreement. Um, yep. It just doesn't surprise me. I don't know why this has never been a thing for me. I mean, I grew up in very conservative uh, Southern Baptist church. That's what I grew up in and kind of you know, I went to Southern Baptist seminary and all that. And uh, I don't know if I was just lucky or if I'm wrong. I could be wrong and they could be correct. I'm not trying to downplay anybody, but this has never been a thing for me. Because nice. the, 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 the second I realized, this isn't like a formal argument, but the second I realized, you know what, there's people over here who are very well-informed and, and well-meaning Christians, uh, and there's people over here who are well-informed and well-meaning Christians, and they disagree on how to interpret this thing. Um, inerrancy yeah. almost didn't necessarily even matter because I'm not 
and so in other words, if even if the text is inerrant, I'm not an inerrant interpreter of the text. So True. I don't know. <laughs> You're making like, yeah, like I, it's kind of like a theological flex that doesn't sure. really have much meaning because I still have to do the work as an interpreter. Right. And the question of what inerrancy can mean, I mean, without error, you're importing so much in there. And I think any definition of inerrancy, that means the voice from heaven has to be saying the exact same thing. I mean, there are fundamentalists out there who believe God simultaneously said you and he, so they can reconcile those sorts of things. And I think once you're doing that, you're basically writing yourself a new scripture. I mean, that's just, it's just, um, it's the sort of mental gymnastics you have to do to get these like mutually exclusive on any reasonable reading of a text, things to I harmonize. I was going to parody uh, another. I was going to do a parody earlier again, like I did with the uh, the other, uh, the one I did previously. I was going to say something like that, but yeah, it's not even a parody. Someone really says that. No. That's that's it's unfortunate. There's a ancient, uh, probably second, maybe possibly early third century text called the Gospel of the Hebrews that actually has Jesus baptized twice to fix this. Yeah. So scholars. Christians have recognized this since before the texts were so sacrosanct that we couldn't actually change them. Yeah. I mean, I had to be baptized twice to get all that sin out, but I can't believe that Jesus did, so this is going to be... Uh, let's see. Let's ask uh, one more question. Oh, that that's, I'm a, that's a old heresy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I, had, uh, I got one more question for you, and then I'm going to go to the uh, Q&A. So if you have a question, be sure to tag at Help Me Believe in the live chat. And so I can see your questions. I know that's like the third time I mentioned that, but if you have a question, now's the time to submit it. I'm going to go start scrolling back through there to see uh, all the questions that were submitted earlier to address those. And again, if you want to send a super chat, uh, uh, that'll definitely help me see it and I'll address those first. But Ian, uh, what recommendations do you have for somebody who's interested in this field of study? Uh, let's, let's put it both ways. As an academic, like they want to pursue a PhD in this field, uh, what advice would you have for that person? Or what advice do you have? So this would be actually for me, who's not going to pursue a PhD in New Testament studies, but does want to uh, be well informed on what academics and scholars are saying on this and how to interact with yeah. that. So, yeah. I'll start with, can I do this in reverse order? Sure. Um, so for a person like yourself who is well informed, but not going to be pursuing a PhD, um, I would commend to you to read peer-reviewed scholarship. Um, that is... Uh, it's not, I mean, that is focused on reading scholarship that has gone through the peer review process that are not being published in vanity, uh, vanity presses or um, just, you know, pushed out by Fortress Press. Often really excellent stuff is written that way. And I'm not criticizing anyone who does that. Once you're an established scholar, you can publish whatever you want. Um, and that's how the system works. Um, that said, there is so much more careful work and so much less you have so much less of an ability to just re do rhetorical flourishes when you are trying to push something through one of the top six journals in our field, one of these peer-reviewed journals that require you know extensive footnoting, really careful wording that is getting re written by other re read by other scholars and is usually getting rejected three times along the way. Um, and I think that sort of really careful, rigorous um, analysis is important to read. Um, so it doesn't mean you have to stop reading all N.T. Wright books. Um, but maybe go pick up, if you're interested in reading N.T. Wright, go read one of his back when he had to write peer-reviewed scholarship. Go read that. And spoilers, his stuff is way better from back then. Anyways, um, 
how do you know where to start? Well, I mean, you can go look up the names of the top journals in the field. You can just Google that. Um, it'll pull up uh, someone who has done a good ranking of these. Yeah. Uh, do you have any advice? I, I do want to add this in there. Do you have any advice on how to get access to that without uh, going broke? Yo, absolutely. Um, the, the easiest thing to do, of course, is to go find something you want to read first. So you can go to the searching. Anyone will help you, will let you search. You can search on Google Scholar. You can search, go to any university website, library, and it'll let you search for whatever you want. So then you find the piece you want to read. Um, and, you can, and then you're right. Usually then you have to pay to get it through the university. But there's lots of other really good options. Um, the first thing is most scholars who are still living today and writing, which is a great place to start. You shouldn't start by going to 18th century scholars. Um, have some sort of academia page. So Mark Goodacre, my advisor, has probably 20 articles up on his academia page. These are all published in top tier journals, but you can download a PDF for free from his academia page. All you have to do is create a login. Um, and most predominant, prominent scholars are doing that still. Um, the thing to do after that is, um, I mean, there's there's often you can find a copy online in ways that are semi-legal. Um, <laughs> But assuming we're not going to do that, and assuming there's no academia page... I'll email you about um, that after this, yeah. Yeah. Um, assuming those two things are off the table, um, it's a great idea to email the scholar. I have emailed hundreds of scholars and asked for a PDF of the thing they wrote. Uh, probably not hundreds, but I've emailed lots. Um, and everyone does this in the field. And scholars love sending you a print-off, sending you a PDF. And they're allowed to. It's not illegal. Uh, publish um, presses let... Uh, scholars send PDFs of their article to people without paying. And scholars are almost, I've never met a scholar who wasn't delighted to send you their piece for free. Um, just be polite, use their formal title, look it up, make sure you spell their name right, and be specific about what you want, and write a short paragraph. And I, I've never met a scholar who wouldn't send you with the, your, their piece in a heartbeat. Um, yeah. So there's my recommendations. Right. And if you're looking for where to start, listen to the NT Review Pod, my, my podcast, which discusses the reception of classic works of New Testament scholarship. Yes, that is a good place to start. Uh, okay, so this question comes from Shannon Q, uh, who's in the live chat, and she asks, how much of the Old Testament is incorporated into your studies when researching the New Testament? Do your courses review that history also in, in order to harmonize the text? Hmm. Uh, harmonizing is certainly not my uh, um, goal. Uh, I have a minor, a PhD minor in um, Jewish scripture. Uh, in in actually the Sept I focused on the Septuagint. Um, so I've done a lot of work on the Greek translation of Jewish scripture. I did an undergraduate degree where I learned Hebrew um, and studied Hebrew Bible with Bernard Levinson, who is a one of the best Hebrew Bible scholars in the world, in my opinion, and in other people's opinions. Um, uh, I had my major in biblical studies was almost exclusively Old Testament. Um, and yeah, you can't you can't take a New Testament course uh, at Duke and not work extensively with the Hebrew Bible as well. That's a little different. Studying the way Romans uses Isaiah is a little different than studying Isaiah as a I'm going to get the dates wrong here, but maybe a sixth century prophetic text. Um, no, that, that's not right. But don't. Um, but we all engage in that sort of study in different ways. Um, I have an article I'm working on publishing right now about the Greek translation of Isaiah um, that I did an SBL paper on last year. So we all work with that. And Laura's done a bunch of Talmud stuff. Um, and uh, she can talk about how rabbinics interpreted the Hebrew Bible. There's, yeah, we do a lot of that. Yeah. But not with the purpose of harmonizing. No harmonizing. We don't, we're not trying to harmonize. 
Uh, let's see. This question comes from Joe D, and it is Ian. What is the most controversial thing that you believe? Ooh, this is a great question. Thank you so much, Joe D. <laughs> About the New Testament in particular? Yeah, sure. Or as a Christian or something like that, I guess. Oh, gosh. Uh, or, I... or, or as a New Testament... Uh... The most controversial thing I believe is that Star Wars is bad. Oh, gosh. Yeah. On almost any level, I know how to evaluate stories or media. Um, but that's not probably what he was asking. No. <laughs> and it's not because I don't d dislike popular things. I think Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter are wonderful. I geek out for hours. Um, it's just, and Star Trek is wonderful. Star Wars is bad. Um, I mean, maybe one of my controversial opinions in New Testament scholarship is I tend to think a lot of the James Matthew Didache overlaps are reattributed um, early Christian teachings reattributed to Jesus. Um, but I hold that with a very loose grasp. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, it's one of the sort of things that I've always I've suspected, but I don't have any way of proving it. Um, the thing is, Matthew seems to reattribute things from John the Baptist to Jesus um, and stuff like that. So he seems to be engaged in this. And I, I don't know how to identify what is and what isn't, but I think probably more there's probably more stuff getting assigned to Jesus by Matthew than, um, uh, than most scholars would agree, mm. I, I think. So that question was, what was the most controversial thing that you believe? There's going to be a similar question in the bonus segment. If so, uh, to put a plug for the bonus segment, uh, if you want to get access to that, just head on over to the Patreon link, which you can find in the description below and become a supporter of Help Me Believe. You get access to not only five more minutes with Ian Meals, but five more minutes with all of my guests. And so that's a, uh, some bonus content that you can only get at, pay at, at our Patreon uh, site. And the question there will be, on what area does Ian disagree with his co-host, Laura Robinson? But we're not going to answer it here. You'll have to go over there to get it. For now, this question... Lots. Lots. <laughs> and so for now, this question comes from... Uh, YouTube name is uh, Grayback. It says, Q&A for Ian. What's the history of the papacy? Catholics say that Peter was the first, but would he consider himself a head of the church? Uh, when did the papacy really start? So I don't know if this is uh, anything you care to answer. But... This is such an overwhelming question. Yeah. What, um, let's, let's do this. Uh, well, I don't know. Go ahead. I, let me just say one thing real quick. Um, there's lots of evidence that in the second century, uh, there wasn't a single bishop in Rome. Uh, there are, We can look at um, Clement's letter uh, from Corinth. We can look at Ignatius's letter to Rome. Uh, there seems to it seems to have been led by a college of presbyters, a college of leaders, um, whereas there were monoepiscopacies, single bishops elsewhere in Asia Minor, um, as it reflected in Ignatius's letters, um, and so already the very beginning. And then I think there's also evidence that this is also going on when Paul writes to Rome, although I guess Peter wouldn't have gotten there yet on the the Roman telling of things. Um, it seems to be there were there were multiple independent, but in conversation churches in Rome um, that are run by different people and there isn't a, a bishop in Rome um, or even into the mid second century hmm. um, and so there's good evidence there to support the sort of papacy notion didn't exist in the second century in the early second century very beyond that things get very complicated very fast so I'm gonna <laughs> 
Okay, this question comes from uh, Jonathan Becker, and the question is, do Matthew and Luke ever show similar fatigue when editing the same Markin passage? Good question. Well, so similar fatigue. They, they, Matthew and Luke often reflect the same changes to Mark. Right. That is what we called Mark Q overlaps or major agreements. And there's a whole spectrum of these down to minor agreements where they will change the same word or, you know, small things or add in a sentence in the same place. Um, Matthew and Luke both add the, the words and fire <laughs> to the preaching of John the Baptist, which you know, is a little thing, but it's, it's a place where they're both making copying over verbatim and then add the same change. Um, so far as I know, this never results in editorial fatigue. That is, they never both create a make a characteristic change early that produces an inconsistency. Um, that would be really strange if they did. It would sort of assume that there was a a proto double tradition, a proto Matthew and Luke that was already using Mark, a sort of cue that already knew Mark, because you'd have the same sort of authorial creativity that was characteristic getting copied over into both. Um, but there are places where Luke copies over. Matthew's changes to Mark. Yeah. Um, so. They're just not examples of editorial fatigue. I got you. That's right. Uh, okay, so another question from Jonathan Becker is, are there reasons to believe, uh, in parentheses on the two-source theory, a Q-source... Uh, oh, are there reasons to believe on the two-source theory that the Q-source would not be preserved? Uh, most of Mark shows up in Matthew and Luke, but the church still kept Mark. Why would Q be different so i don't know what answers they give um i kind of suspect it has to do with the fact that q doesn't have a passion narrative and um my guess is someone like crossan who believes there's a sort of non-crucifixion non-passion centered christianity and a passion centered christianity that is a christianity that cares all about the teachings and a christianity that cares all about the cross he believes that the christianity that cared about the cross ended up sort of suppressing, supplanting, doing away with the non-Cross Christianity. Um, and I, my guess is someone like Crossan, John Dominic Crossan, would say it's a result of that sort of victory of Cross-centric Christianity that um, Q is lost. But I can't give you page numbers on this, um, and I, I'm sure different people have different explanations. Sure. Okay, uh, this question comes from uh, Brendan Ho. It says, is there anything we can say about the naked man in Mark 14, 51? Well, <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot we could say, but uh, it's, I, I, I'm guessing this has to do with his identity. Yeah, no, I mean, not about his identity. Um, there's lots of fun things to say about it. Uh, Matthew and Luke both drop it out, and there is a sort of interestingness to places where Matthew and Luke both omit the same thing from Mark, because even though they're working from each other, presumably Luke isn't copying out of Mark and goes and checks what Matthew has omitted. Um, in fact, we know he doesn't because Luke often copies out things out of Mark that Matthew doesn't have. Um, so both decide to delete this, which probably means they think it's weird. Um, and this is often the case, uh, things that Luke and Matthew independently, or things that both Luke and Matthew decide to delete from Mark, which they wouldn't have to do, even though they know each other. Um, uh, are often things that are strange, like Jesus using mud and Jesus spitting and a naked man running away. And um, the note about Simon the Cyrene's sons. Like these are the sorts of things that Luke and Matthew both decide to delete. Um, even though, you know, the fact that Matthew is deleted doesn't mean Luke would have had to. And so that's about all we can say is that probably by the time Luke and Matthew are writing, they don't have a clue what Mark is trying to do here. Um, and 
decide that it's the sort of thing that neither of them wants to keep. Right. Okay, this question comes from uh, Jonathan Becker. It says, what's the average shelf life of a piece of New Testament scholarship? So, oh, a piece of New Testament scholarship. Yeah. Oh, what's a shelf life mean in this context? I, how long do they stay important? Her, I, or perhaps do they stay important or perhaps do they, uh, how long is it before they get so-called debunked or something like that or something else comes along? So I'm rec- I recorded a podcast last week. It's not published. It won't be published probably for a while on a piece of German scholarship that was written in the 1880s that I think is incredibly influential on the way scholars continue to look at the Gospels. I think it fundamentally under underlies scholars as disparate as Richard Bauckham, who tends to be on the conservative side of things, um, all the way to John Dominic Crossan. It sort of underlies both of their views, and they both cite it, and it's important. Um so I think, I mean, I'm a little bit of a, um, conservative isn't quite the right word. I'm someone who finds it very interesting to look at, to contextualize questions and debates. Um, and so maybe I'm the wrong person to ask, but I write, do a podcast where we talk about 19th century scholarship as often as we talk about 20th century scholarship. That's not quite true, but I do a podcast where we talk a lot of old dead guys. Um, and also... Oh, dead women, <laughs> female scholars. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, Ian, thanks so much. That's it for the Q and A. I hope I, I think I actually did get to every single question that was in there. So that's great. Uh, nice. but if, I, if I didn't, I apologize. And uh, you know, go over to the NT Review podcast, and you'll find there's a fly in here. Sorry, and you'll <clears throat> find all the answers to your questions. But uh, Ian, thanks so much for uh, coming on and doing this. I really appreciate it. And yeah. <clears throat> We'll Thank to, you for having me. Yeah, we'll have to do it again sometime. It's been fun. And again, if you yeah. if you want to watch, excuse me, sorry. <clears throat> now I'm choking, and not on the fly. But if you want to uh, access the five more minute uh, bonus segment, you just follow the Patreon link in the description below, and become a so- supporter, and you can get access to that. And <clears throat> thanks so much uh, for coming on. I really appreciate it, sir. Happy to do it. Thanks for inviting me.